Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the Tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. It's a bit of a somber day here in the tomb because we've just learned some very sad news. Uh, Beloved genre actor uh, John Saxon has died. And I don't know about you guys, but he's actually a big favorite here in the, the tomb. So we couldn't begin the episode without mentioning his passing. Right, right. Um, and of course, John Saxon spanned something like six decades of genre work. We're talking westerns, horror, sci-fi, action, adventure, you name it. Right. Of course, he's... I'm The first thing I thought of him in is Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. He plays the, the father of the main character. Right. He reprises that role in two films and then plays a version of himself in New Nightmare. Yeah. Uh, well, New Nightmare, interesting case. He plays himself. He also reprises the role of Donald Thompson from the other Nightmare on Elm Street movies. You're right, he does. Um, and in fact, that was when when people were talking about him as an actor over the last couple of days, um, that was the moment I pointed to because it's a really awesome moment in New Nightmare when you see John Saxon flip the switch from playing the character of John Saxon to playing the character Don Thompson, because he does it mid-scene. That is, ooh, ooh, dang, that's good. Uh, yeah, like, we really need to talk more Nightmare on Elm Street yes. on this podcast. You know, it'd be great if there was some, like, Marvel Nightmare on Elm Street comics we could cover on the show at some point. Yeah, right? Right. I, I, I wonder why, uh, I wonder if that ever happened. Ah, couldn't have, <laughs> couldn't have. But, of course, he's also um, in perhaps one of the greatest uh, cop films of all time. Yeah. Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was wondering where you were going with that, and you went straight to the MST3K. Yes, of course I did. It's 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 me. <laughs> I went Maybe st- not the first movie that anyone thinks of when they think of John Saxon, but, you know, it ought to be like the fourth or fifth movie they think of. Yeah, yeah. Of course, he was also in Black Christmas. Yep. Uh, which uh, which was done on the Christmas last drive-in special. Yep, yep. And I think he was like a last-minute addition. Probably to that film. Probably that that, that kind of happens with John Saxon. Like, hey, we need somebody last minute. Well, I can do it. Okay. He You're he in. was very much the definition of like a working character actor. Yes. You know, he was dependable. He was consistent. And if you hired him, you knew you were going to get his full commitment, regardless of the budget or the quality of the project. Yes. Yes. It's just, he was always enjoyable to watch. Yes. And and, and we've been talking horror, but he's also famous for uh, Enter the Dragon, where he plays Roper. Uh, he's one of the, the three sort of uh, main characters in that, I guess, second build to uh, uh, Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and of course, uh, I, I grew up loving Battle Beyond the Stars, which is a Roger Corman sci-fi movie from the 80s, um, which is very much a science fiction riff on The Seven Samurai or Magnificent Seven. Yes, it is. 
which I've never and, seen. And he, it, it's quite good. It's fun. Uh, it, early '80s uh, sci-fi. Uh, Saxon plays the villain. Um, George Papard is in it from the A Team. Robert Vaughn is in it, basically playing the same role he played in Magnificent Seven. Um, <laughs> and and screenplay was by John Sayles. Hmm. But but yeah, so uh, Saxon is in it fairly memorably. Um, but yeah, I, I think probably the the first things I think of with with John Saxon are probably the horror roles, just because those are the things that I really they're, they're the first things I really noticed him in. You know? Yeah. But we we just wanted to start a show by recognizing an actor we both appreciate a lot. Um, just and not somebody who necessarily gets lauded as much as he should. Right, like he's not. He wasn't the sort of award winning actor that that uh, often gets a lot of attention at the end of his career. Yeah, but worth mentioning. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, and by all means, uh, if you if you want suggestions on. John Saxon flicks to check out. Uh, hit me up on on Twitter, and I will be happy to point you in the right direction. He will. He he's always happy to make recommendations, even if you don't ask for them. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a recommendation, Trey. What's that? I think we should move on to Hellstrom Watch. <laughs> You may have a master's in film, but I have a master's in Segway. <laughs> and we have a surprisingly stacked Hellstrom Watch segment today. I like how you just moved on from that. That was good. <laughs> that you know, that's that's my uh, that's my improv technique. It's not so much it's not so much yes and, it's just and now for something completely different. <laughs> yes, Hellstrom Watch. We have so much stuff. Yeah, and, and so we've got a fair amount of Disney Plus news. Yep, everything's delayed. Not quite. Okay, what do you got? WandaVision is still on schedule. That is just so goddamn amazing. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, not only is it on schedule, but supposedly they upped the episode order from like six or seven episodes up to nine episodes. I hope that doesn't mean they're going to like just stretch it out to yeah, a ridiculous yeah, yeah. degree. Or maybe it just means that they, like, shot so much stuff that they liked that they didn't want to cut it out. Yeah, but how likely is that? I think it's just like, ah, man, we really need content right now for Disney+. Plus. <laughs> so let's stretch out WandaVision. Um, and so that's that's the first thing, is, is that uh, WandaVision is still on schedule. Um, now... Most of the other shows are delayed, but there are still some things happening with them. Um, for example, the apparently still-in-development Hawkeye series has landed some directors. Really? Yes. Uh, so it's a directing team. Uh, they're usually credited as Bert and Birdie, which is uh, the nom de plume for Amber Finlayson and Katie Elwood. Okay. And so they directed uh, Troop Zero for Amazon, which was a coming-of-age comedy. And they also did a uh, a parody buddy cop show, which I think also was on Amazon, called Comrade Detective. Have you watched Comrade Detective? I've not watched Comrade Detective. You should watch Comrade Detective. I think you would appreciate it. So oh. Comrade Detective is a buddy cop show. But the premise is that it's a buddy cop show that was commissioned by the Communist Party of Romania in the 80s. Oh, and so it is. It is very much a buddy cop show from a like Soviet perspective during the Cold War. That 
that does sound like something I would enjoy. Um, and 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 also, uh, it's presented dubbed. So even though it was filmed, you know, it was actually filmed in was it 2017 or whatever. Like they they redubbed all the dialogue so that it looks dubbed. Ooh, okay. And and it features uh, Channing Tatum and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Nick Offerman, Jenny Slate, Jason Mansukas. So lot, lots of people that I enjoy. Yeah, I, I I can want. I need some more stuff to watch. Obviously. Yeah, so it, it's short because it's you know it's it's done sort of in the style of a, a British show. So it's it's like six episodes. Okay. But yeah, but Comrade Detective, quirky sense of humor, but action oriented, um, and uh, some of the people involved in that. Uh, oh, actually, so I take that. Let me correct myself. That is actually uh, Comrade Detective is directed by Reese Thomas. But he is also signed on for uh, episodes of Hawkeye. So there's technically a directing team and then another director who have been hired. Burton Birdie and then also Reese Thomas. Mm. So so that that's the, the Hawkeye news. No other information. So we still don't know who else is involved besides Jeremy Renner. Um, it has long been suggested that Kate Bishop will be introduced. But no casting announcements have been made regarding that character. I'm... So we've just moved on from the Renner drama, basically? Yeah, they, they just dropped that altogether. Yeah. Okay, I guess. <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, yeah, it, it, it faded from the headlines, and thus, I guess Disney felt no need to mention it ever again. Anyway, what's our next item? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, that was Hawkeye. Uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier is delayed indefinitely. Yep, which is not too surprising. No, it actually had... I had forgotten this. Falcon and Winter Soldier had been suffering delays since before the pandemic. But it's the one I most want to see. They actually had to shut down production in Puerto Rico because of the earthquakes back in January. Puerto Rico, Prague. uh, Where else were they filming? Hungary? Uh, All over the place. Uh, Atlanta at one point. Jesus. That's an an insane shooting location schedule. Yeah. But... Of course, the one I most desperately want to see is the one just getting delayed all to hell. Like, I need continuation of the Captain America story. Yeah. Uh, There was a recent interview with Anthony Mackie where he talked about, like, working on this show was, like, the first time working on a Marvel production where, like, budget constraints even came up. Because he talked about how with, with the other Marvel, like, the Marvel movies that he had been in, like... They could just shoot forever. They could do take after take after take. They could extend the the shoot if they needed to. They'd go back and do reshoots, and there was always money for it. And and he said this time they were like, nah, like we've got to shut down. Like we do not have the budget to just hold indefinitely like this. But is that because of coronavirus, or is it because it's a TV series? I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's both. Okay, I guess there insu- there's insurance to consider too. Right. Like right. insurance doesn't kick in. If you don't shut down production. Right, right. So um, in order to pay employees and crew and other people something over mm-hmm. an extended period of time, you do actually have to physically shut down production rather than just putting it on hold so that, that those funds can be released. Right. Okay. And and, and uh, Loki is, I think, still scheduled for sometime in 2021, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think it technically moved because it was already planned to come out much later. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like they've shot a lot of it already, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, it was in production at the same time as the others. It just, I think they were planning for a longer post-production on it. And I think, 
I think where WandaVision and Loki have the advantage is there's maybe less location shooting <laughs> involved yes. than yes. on Falcon and Winter Soldier, apparently. Yes. And, and you know, what I would not be surprised going forward is I would not be surprised if Marvel starts using the um, technology that was developed for The Mandalorian. Uh, like, the uh, the they developed this technology for, like, digital backdrops and things to create settings in a studio. Mm. Uh, so, like, a lot of a lot of Mandalorian was filmed in studio. Okay. And, and but it doesn't look like it. Okay. And and that technology is now is now Disney's. You know. But okay, the the advantage Mandalorian has there though is that it is an alien world. It is. It is. But it never looks fake. You know, like the desert looks like a real desert. You know. Yeah, but, like, we're going to be able to say, like, hey, that's not really Morocco, as opposed to, like, hey, that's not really Tatooine. Right, and, and it's not something you could pull off for everything. Like, it's probably not going to work as well for cities. No. But, like, I could see I could see scenarios where you could significantly reduce the location budget by at least doing part parts of shoots using that technology. Me? No, I should definitely not be put in charge of a production budget. I'm, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, uh, okay. So anyway, Falcon Winter Soldier, we'll see it someday, maybe. Someday, maybe. Uh, next up, moving away from the MCU, um, New Mutants is still scheduled for theatrical release on August 28th. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'll believe that when I'm sitting down to watch it. <laughs> right, right. Well, and at August 28th, me sitting down to watch it will not be in a movie theater. Oh, no. No, no, Not no, in no, 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 I'm just like, I, you will be legitimately lucky if you get me to sit down in a movie theater this year. Oh, no, I, I've written off this year. Like, if if the drive-in reopens, I might be willing to do that sort of thing. You there know? we go. I will go to a double feature of Black Widow and New Mutants. Yeah. Let, let's do let's do that. Like, you and me, we'll just, we'll, we'll just go to a drive-in movie theater of Black Widow and New Mutants. That'll be fine. And besides that, no, we're not. Uh-uh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this this came up this came up during the virtual Comic Con at Home panel that they had for New Mutants uh, recently, uh, which featured a, a big chunk of the cast along with the writer director, um, where they actually sort of leaned into how ridiculous it is that this movie has had like six release dates. <laughs> okay. Uh, like apparently, apparently they showed a trailer. That kept showing each release date in sequence getting scratched out leading up to August 28th. <laughs> and and then when August 28th popped up, a little uh, note popped up beneath it that said, fingers crossed. Nice. Nice. So they are, they are aware of the optics of this. I mean, Jesus Christ, just release it on freaking home digital. Yep. Yeah. Um, they showed a bunch of new footage, which I have not watched yet because I've not had time to sit through the whole panel. Because I, I don't really enjoy watching Zoom conferences, and that's basically what all these panels look like. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. It's just, it can be difficult. I find it interesting yeah. that, um, I don't know if how familiar you are with the show Critical Role. Uh, a little bit. Okay. Um, they decided th- that instead of like doing their games as Zoom, they would actually still meet in the studio. They just all have their own individual cubicles now. They're at least 10 feet apart from each other. Okay. And they're filmed inside of their little cubicles. Gotcha. That's interesting. Yes. 
but uh, also um, worth noting, uh, they say New, Mut- New Mutants is coming out on August 28th. Mm-hmm. They're going to get murdered. Because you know what also is coming out on August 28th? What's that? The new Phineas and Ferb movie on Disney+. Plus. Uh, yeah. I'm just like, well, I have an option. I can take my family to a movie theater to see a film that's been delayed six times, has a possible horror bent to it, mm-hmm. or... Oh, no, most, most definitely, like... At, at least, like, horror-ish. Yeah. Or I could stay home with the kids and watch Phineas and Ferb. Yep. I mean, if I, even if I didn't have kids, Phineas and Ferb would be a hard one to pass up. <laughs> Not only that, but... So, so August 28th, that's a Friday, right? Like, it's coming out on a Friday. Yeah. Bill and Ted Face the Music is going video on demand the following Tuesday. Oh, so they're not even being like, yeah, we're going to be in theaters. Well, they're doing they're they're doing a limited theatrical release in places where it is safe to do so, but they're also going simultaneous video on demand. So basically, not America, right? Well, not America plus drive-ins. God bless the drive-ins. Right, right. But yeah, but they so so even in terms of like major should be in theaters movies, New Mutants gets a weekend before Bill and Ted comes out. Again, featuring featuring. MCU performer William Sadler. Again, the only thing I could see New Mutants having for it is a novelty factor. Mm-hmm. I want to see the movie. Final Fox Mutant movie? The final Fox Mutant movie, and I want to see this film that got delayed six fucking times. <laughs> right, right. Like, the main reason I'm going to watch New Mutants is because we've walk- talked about it so often on the show. Yeah, I mean, it, we're committed to this being Hellstrom Watch, but it could easily be New Mutant Watch. Yep. Like, we have been tracking those two things about the same amount of time. Anyway, what's so. next? So, final, most relevant in uh, installment is there was a Comic-Con panel for the Hulu series Hellstrom. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Oh, okay. And in that panel, they showed the first trailer. Really? So, there is actual, real, legitimate footage of Hellstrom, the Hulu series. It is real. It exists. And it rocked the world and broke the internet in two, right? Actually, I have not seen anyone talk about it online yet. Like, I had to go Googling for it myself. Okay. And what'd you think? You know... Yeah! It looks all, it looks all right. It, it, it's definitely a show. Yeah, it's a show. Um, the main character's name is definitely Damien Hellstrom. Yep. They're spelling it wrong, but his name is Hellstrom. Yep. It is a, it is a program that is on that is going to be on the television and it has it's called Hellstrom. Yeah. And now it's also going to be a very short season. It is a run of 10 episodes. That's not really a short season anymore. Well, it it's short. I guess it's short for network TV. Okay. So, cuz if you think about look up a season of Arrow sometime. I mean, do I have to? I'm just saying, like, the, the the CW shows usually do, like, 20-plus episode seasons. Arrow is the reason I am, like, a few seasons behind on my, on my DC <laughs> CW watching. Uh, I, I'm behind because I got to a point where, coming out of a crossover, all of the shows were the same level of unhappy all at the same time. Ah, uh, yeah. And I just didn't feel... Like, it... Because normally, if one show is especially dark... The other will offset that by being lighter. Yeah. But, like, all of the shows got dark around the same time, and that was just a bit much for me. Yeah. 
I understand that. But anyway, so we've got we've got Hellstrom. The trailer's out there. Um, when this episode drops, we'll make sure to uh, post a, a link to it on the Twitter. Yep. Um, but it, it, if you've been following along with us, if you've been reading Son of Satan comics in Marvel Spotlight with us, you're not going to see much familiar in this Hellstrom trailer. No, I think the word the watchword is generic for this trailer. Yeah, I mean it. It, it feels like every other supernaturally tinged procedural type show that's out there. You know, I'm thinking of the and, and so, which is not a disparagement of that genre. It, it reminds me a little bit of the Constantine show, which was underrated and should have lasted longer. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the Exorcist TV show, which was also underrated and should have lasted longer. Mm-hmm. Um, reminds me of Supernatural. It reminds me of Lock and Key. You know, you name it. Like there, there is a certain aesthetic that yep. this show is is playing into. You ever seen one of those things where they like lay the audio from one trailer over to over on another trailer, and it just matches up? Yes. This would be perfect for that. It would. It would. I could I could definitely see that. Because a lot of these shows, even the good ones, they all kind of look and sound alike. Yep. So so that's that's a thing that uh, doesn't necessarily mean the show is going to be bad, but it, it means that it's very much... They are... It, it, it seems to me they are more concerned with hitting certain aesthetic notes in terms of the TV genre rather than hitting certain notes in terms of adapting the comic. Which, I mean, look at what they're adapting. There's not a lot of pressure, like, like we have to get the canon exactly right for Damien Hellstrom. Right, it's, right. It, it's, it's not like, you know, the first uh, uh, the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie where everybody's watching it with, like, a fine-tooth cone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like... And and still grumbling about the Green Goblin suit. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, it's not like, you know... Okay, can you imagine, like, this first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie if, like, instead of Uncle Ben dying... Um, he had just gone off to get a pack of cigarettes and ran off with a hooker named Betty, uh, <laughs> to Arizona. I mean, I feel like that's not a Spider-Man movie, but I might watch it anyway. <laughs> Although it actually, what it actually reminds me of is in the early days of developing a Spider-Man movie, okay. uh, for a while, the Canon group had the rights to Spider-Man. That's promising. Uh, the canon group, you know, who made Masters of the Universe. Okay. Um, and, and so they, they had the rights to, to Spider-Man. And they hired Toby Hooper, the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. And the reason they hired Toby Hooper, director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was because they actually... The, the uh, Golan and Globus, the, the two guys that ran canon, didn't actually know anything about Spider-Man comics. And so they assumed... And expected a screenplay where Spider-Man is a guy who performs an experiment on himself and turns into a spider monster. God, I wish we could go to his alternate universes and watch these films. <laughs> <laughs> We've had this discussion before where we just want we want to go to alternate universes and see these film these versions of films that never got released here. Yep. Like the Eric Stoltz version of Back to the Future. Right. Or the Tim Burton Superman. Yep. Yep. Like I, I just want to see them. I don't want them to be like what happened here, but I just want to see them as curiosities. Right. Yep. Um, but yeah. So so you're you're right. Nobody is especially concerned about like living up to the legacy of the character Damon Hellstrom. No. 
And that's okay. Uh, even, I mean, he is, conti- like, to this day, a, a character of some note in Marvel Comics. He is still appearing in a major title, although I think that title recently got canceled. Wah, wah, wah. Um, but it was a good title. Like, it was good until it got canceled. I think I think the pandemic just caused a reshuffling of titles. Was that Strange Academy? No. Well, he wasn't that one, too. Uh, but uh, it was... Strike Force was the depressingly generic title, um, but the member it it really should have been like a new version of Midnight Suns or something. Although not Midnight Suns because like half the team are women, but you know. Interesting. Uh, but but the 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 lineup for Strike Force was Damon Hellstrom, Blade, Angela, uh, Monica Rambeau, Wiccan, Spider Woman, and Winter Soldier. The hell. <laughs> Just like, huh? What was that? Okay, what was that team from the 90s that replaced West Coast Avengers? Oh, um, it was, uh, because it was the Stark team, right? It was, uh, Forceworks. Forceworks, there we go. Another generic as fuck name. They had a bit of a comeback recently-ish. Everything does, but okay. Um, well, because... In Dan Slott's Iron Man, you know, they uh, he did the Iron Man 2020 thing where Tony Stark gets replaced by the Iron Man of 2020 that existed in the Marvel Universe for years. Yes. Um, and there was a there was a Force Works. It was either a one shot or a miniseries or something. Nice. Uh, and, it, you know, U.S. agent and the whole deal. Of course. Um, yeah, well, because Force Works was actually uh, the the inspiration for the Iron Man cartoon in the 90s. Yes, it was. Only thing they did was they uh, swapped out U.S. Agent for uh, Hawkeye. Was it Hawkeye? Because I, f- I could have sworn U.S. Agent was in that show. Nope, they did Hawkeye. Oh, okay. Yeah, U.S. Agent, I think, was in the comic book tie-in. But but the, the cartoon, they had Hawkeye. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. Um, anyway, I, th- I think... I think we have... When, when we're talking about 90s Marvel cartoons in a segment ostensibly about the Hulu show Hellstrom... Which I think this Hellstrom freaking Watch, segment's named after you, me? <laughs> right, right. I think Hellstrom Watch might have run its course for the day. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> we'll be right back with our coverage of Strange Tales number 173 right after these messages. Image Comics formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers. Creator-owned mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. In April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands, and fandom resounded with cries of... Pouches? Why are there so many pouches? What? You don't like pouches? All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics. Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just you can spell it right. 
Look, then run for your life. Incredible is the word for the world's first monster musical. See in magnificent Eastman color, the daring dancing, enticing and horrifying, the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. From the innocence of music and laughter comes the twilight of terror. Along the midway, scantily clad dancers luring the young lovers into the sideshows. See the dancing girls of the carnival murdered by the incredible night creatures of the midway. I will know that something evil lies ahead for me. An unspeakable pit of dismal subhuman monsters who drool and gibber, moaning for the thrill of revenge. Incredible are the songs, the gaiety, the zombie stomp of those who will stop living. And then the mix-up, trickery, and the device to ruin. See the hunchback of the midway fight a duel of death with the mixed-up zombies, turning men into monsters twisted, tormented human vultures, yearning to kill incredible creatures clutching at the thin thread of their miserable lives. Human vultures, only the weird zombies remain. Obey. Who is the woman branded in birth wearing the ward of horror? Do as Madame Estrella said. The world's first monster musical. The incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Our first issue this episode is... Strange Tales number 173. The story is called Sacrifice Play. It's from April 1974. Writer is Lynn Ween. Artist is Gene Colan. Inker is Dick Giordano. Letter is Gaspar Zaldano. Zaldino? Zaldino. There we go. Colorist is Glynis Ween. Editor is Roy Thomas. Brother Voodoo is consulting with the various magical figures of New Orleans, trying to get a line on the woman Laura Lee, who was kidnapped by the cult of the Black Rooster. There we go, yeah. The Black Rooster last issue. They are unable to help him, and he also consults with some businessman who seems a bit shady, but we don't get any explanation why he seems a bit shady. Also, Laura Lee's father, the police commissioner or detective, Police Detective Chief Samuel Tate decides that he can't trust Brother Voodoo, so he's going to put out a warrant for his arrest. Meanwhile, Brother Voodoo is investigating a cemetery and gets ambushed by some cultists who uh, we met last issue. And for a while there, they have him on the ropes, but then he summons the spirit of his brother who possesses one of the cultists and helps him. But eventually, he is overwhelmed by the evil presence and the cultist and captured with and wakes up to find himself on a cross and below him the prone form of Laura Lee. And then the mastermind behind all this reveals himself as the Black Talon, not the Black Rooster. Sorry. The bl- no, the Black Rooster. Yeah. The reveals himself as the Black Talon, the head of the cult of the Black Rooster. And we are told that this will be continued in 
Tales of the Zombie. And that the next entry on Strange Tales will be the Man-Wolf, which isn't true. So, a couple things here. First, this is a really weird way for Brother Voodoo to exit this title. It really is. and On a cliffhanger. Yeah. Like, I would expect this from this era of Marvel if he was getting a solo title. Yes. Because that's what they did with Ghost Rider. Mm-hmm. Like, like that. that's what they've done with a bunch of these characters that came out of Spotlight, is they'll end it on some sort of twist or cliffhanger that leads into the solo book. Yep. And, and that's what this feels like it ought to be. Yes, it does. But we're not getting that. Instead, we're getting a wrap-up story in Tales of the Zombie. Yeah, he's becoming a backup. Yeah. Which doesn't bode well for the character. No. And, and maybe suggests that uh, Strange Tales' uh, sales numbers were not great. No. Which is a shame, because I've really enjoyed the, this book up until this point. Because this issue feels like it treads a lot of water. It does. It does. Um you're right, the uh, meeting with the shady business guy feels weird because it doesn't seem to go anywhere. No, he's just sitting there Lex Luthering pretty hard. Right, right. And by that, I mean 80s Lex Luthor, not uh, Brother Voodoo, you made me go bald as a child, so I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is the I'll Lex Luthor of this era, actually. Also, not... My favorite thing about this issue is the some of the use of dialect is pretty rough. Yeah. Especially the opening stuff with Mama Limbo. Yeah. Like, that's, like, it's, I don't know, the some of this di- dialect they've written would make Gambit look like he was speaking the king's English. <laughs> oh, Shaddy. <laughs> You're flatter, Gambit, no? And then, like... This is always a strike against a book for me, but they did that thing where uh, the villain on the cover doesn't show up till the final page. Yep. Hate it. Hate it. Not my favorite. Because it's not a twist if he's on the cover. Nope. It's just that not much else happens in this issue. Right. But yeah, there is, there's no other cover image to do. Uh, well, there is, but you couldn't. They, they would have gotten terrible press. Because the other cover you do is... Brother Voodoo uh, tied to the Upside Down Cross. Yeah, it's just uh, really disappointing end to his to Brother Voodoo's run in Strange Tales. Yeah, and I actually like uh, the Black Talons look. Like, if you're gonna have a rooster-themed voodoo villain, like, that's a pretty strong look. Yeah, if you absolutely have to have <laughs> a, a um, rooster-themed voodoo villain... He's not looking too bad. Like, he's got claws, he's got, like, the the, the head thing and the beak on his mask. I love that you cake. can see his goatee through the, the, the yes, mask. Yes, yes. Which seems like poor mask design. Yes. In fact, wait a minute, let me look at some real quick. Oh, god damn it. What? He's the... He, the he, guy from the middle of the issue? He's Pete, isn't he? Um, so, I don't think so. Well... Well, we have two possible people he could be. Right. Because two people have that goatee. Right. Um, and I'm getting a little thrown off. So, okay. Um, I... What's the name of the guy in the middle of the issue? Like, the one that we said it didn't go anywhere. It is... Desmond Drew. Desmond Drew. Okay. Yeah. Um, pretty sure that's him. Okay. It looks sort of like him. I can check that if we want. Also, the name Desmond Drew sounds familiar, so... Yeah, I gotcha. It's... 
It's it's a disappointing fi- like I said, it's a disappointing final run for Brother Voodoo. Yeah. Which they could they could still like turn this story into something fun again. It's just not especially encouraging that it's gonna be a backup in another magazine. No, it isn't. It makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense that it's strong because there's no other reason for him to be in this issue. Right, right. So, although why Brother Voodoo wouldn't be able to sense that, I have no clue. Right. Well, he senses that something's off, but he can't tell what. Yeah. Okay. And and you mentioned this in your summary, but you're right. Uh, they advertise at the bottom of page 23, a startling new series begins, The Man Wolf, but that is not true. Nope. And we've talked about this before because what we're getting next is the golem. Yep. However, uh, Man-Wolf will be showing up soon. We'll be talking about him eventually. Uh, not next month, so not uh, not June of... Or not not no, May of 74. Not uh, any of our next June. three episodes. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but it's either June or July. Man-Wolf will start making regular appearances because he will be the featured character in Creatures on the Loose. Um, yeah. And that's going to that's gonna be starting with issue number 30, which is actually July. So we've got a ways off on that. But yeah, so so weird mix-up on Marvel's part. I wonder if they originally intended to make Man-Wolf the featured character of Strange Tales. It's, it's very possible. It's not the first time we've seen suggestions that a title will go one way and then it goes another way last minute. Right, where we're told something in the bullpen that is going to happen and then it doesn't end up happening or happens something somewhere very different like months down the line as a completely different character. Right. And and they've been hyping Man-Wolf in the uh, the soapbox for a while now. Yes, they have. And I'm I'm still really excited about it. No matter what title is in there, I'm really excited about Man-Wolf. Right, right. And I've, I've never read his Creatures on the Loose appearances. So this will be this will be fun. I mean, I've only read his Spider-Man stuff, so mm-hmm. it's going to be... And, and some of the cosmic stuff he's involved in. Yep. I've never really read any of that. Mm. Well, I, I when I say that, I mean probably later when he was involved with She-Hulk. Okay, I read that. There we go. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's unfortunately not a whole lot else to say about this, except on, on just a lot of levels, it's kind of sad that this is our last Strange Tales with Brother Voodoo. Yep, just... Mm. The, art, the art's good. Oh, Gene Collins' fantastic. And yeah, Dick yeah. Giordano doing inks over him is great! Yeah, yeah. And, and we do finally get to see him using his signature powers. Yep. Like there's a whole like two page two or three page fight where he uses the spirit of his dead brother to possess his enemies. And still gets his ass kicked. Yes, yes. Again, it's just like your hero doesn't show himself well. Right. So Yeah, I don't know. Mixed bag, not my favorite issue of this book, and and hopefully they they stick the landing in the Tales of the Zombie conclusion. <laughs> we can hope. But Unless you've got more, I, I think that's all I've got for for Strange Tales. Me too. I, I'm I didn't have much to begin with, but yeah, that's that's basically. Yeah, let, let's take a break, and when we come back, we've got a magazine for you, and that's going to be Monsters Unleashed number five, featuring Man Thing and Frankenstein's monster. Woohoo! <laughs> If you take two old punk rockers who are past their prime, put them in front of a movie screen and give them a podcast, what do you get? Cinema punks. Cinepunks. It's the mixtape of movies.
for music and fun on Donnie and Marie as guests Mackenzie Phillips, Paul Lynn, and Mac Davis help Marie celebrate Donnie's 20th birthday. Then, it's Sinbad's most exciting and action-filled adventure ever. A golden quest marked by destiny as Sinbad meets the most fantastic creatures that black magic, true love, and ancient legend can create. The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Friday night, starting at 8 on ABC. Welcome back, Tomb Believers. Our second and final book for today is Monsters Unleashed number 5 from April 1974. Uh, our first story in this magazine is All the Faces of Fear, written by Tony Isabella, uh, pencils and inks by Vicente Alcazar. Deep in the Florida swamp, Man-Thing battles with creatures both natural and arcane, including monstrous bat creatures, all of which are revealed to be the nightmares of Ellen Brandt, the woman who betrayed Ted Salas to AIM, and was ultimately scarred by the Man-Thing's burning touch. She believes the dreams are not hers alone, but are shared with another consciousness. Her new boyfriend, Leonard, tries to comfort her, reminding her that the operation he performed will eventually reverse the effects of the Man-Thing and restore her appearance. Still, Ellen remains not just haunted by her betrayal of Salas, but bitter over the punishment she suffered at the hands of Man-Thing. Despite Leonard's objections, she resolves to go into the swamp and get revenge on the Man-Thing. They venture deep into the swamp until they arrive at the ruins of the AIM base, last seen, I think, in Astonishing Tales number 13. Unbeknownst to the pair, uh, they are trapped by the Man-Thing, drawn by the strange mixture of emotions he senses within them. Overwhelmed by the anger and greed emanating from Ellen, Man-Thing lashes out, striking Leonard. Finally face to face with the Man-Thing once again, Ellen realizes that it must have once been Ted Salas, transformed thanks in part to her betrayal. Recognizing that the true source of her nightmares was her own fear and guilt over her past actions, she literally faces that fear, removing her bandages in front of the shambling swamp creature. Man-Thing reaches out, but he senses no fear, and thus his touch has no effect. Now sensing only sadness, the Man-Thing departs confused. Leonard and Ellen return to town, making mysterious plans for the future, some of which involve the Man-Thing and a scientist and friend of Leonard's. Meanwhile, a local named Farley suggests the swamp might be a good place to go hunting. Reaching out, <laughs> touching you, touching me. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet man thing. <laughs> okay, see, you went there. I was thinking hunk a hunk of burning touch. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, Ellen's actions in the origin story are heavily sanitized from what actually fucking happened. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. Like, oh. She you mean was... where she seduced him and betrayed him to an evil terrorist organization? Yep, which she was a full-throated member of, completely right, conscious of right. her actions. Although even that was sort of a retcon from the first version of the origin, you know? Like, that's the thing, is we've gotten, like, three versions of this origin now. Yes. Because initially, AIM was not involved. No, but I like that part, so we're keeping it. I Yes, no, the, the AIM origin is the best one, yes. Yes. Um, right. It's also weird that this is a Man-Thing story. 
that basically just pretends like all of the issues since Astonishing Tales 13 just didn't happen. Yeah, I'm not digging that so much. Like, none of the other developments and continuity of the character are part of what's going on here. Nope. Like, you don't see any of his supporting cast from the comic. No. There's no mention of the swamp as a nexus of reality. Nope. Even though that's very much a thing in his book now. Yep. Uh, This story could have taken place at any point prior to the Gerber run, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like, that's the thing. It is a sequel to the Astonishing Tales issue. Yes. So. And I feel that Man-Thing has just moved on, moved so far beyond that now in his own book. Very much. Uh, And and in fact, part of, we've talked about it as a throwback story. First thing we get in this issue is a lengthy fight between Man-Thing and an alligator. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of? What's that? You ever read one of those annuals where it's like, Hey, remember this character that you don't freaking remember from, barely freaking remember from the origin? Well, they're here. Here's what they've been doing in the meantime. Here's what's going on with them now. Right. Like, yeah. the kid who saw Peter Parker walking up a wall and his mom says, no more horror films for you, young man. Where is he now? R- right, right. Um, and, I don't know. Ellen Brandt is not a character that is unimportant. Like, she continues to show up from time to time. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, she's not as important to Man-Thing going forward as the supporting cast of his current solo book. Yes. It's just like, okay. When she comes up, she comes up either in flashback or in reference to that origin. Which I understand not wanting to step on Steve Gerber's toes, honestly. Sure, but I guess what's disappointing is once something like the Nexus gets introduced as a concept, any writer and artist team could take that in any direction. Yep. Like, you could tell all kinds of weird, creepy horror stuff that fits the magazines through that concept. But instead, they're just ignoring it. And that's weird to me. Yeah. Like, why couldn't these mysterious nightmares that she was having be an outgrowth of the fact that the betrayal happened so close to the Nexus? Ooh. That's right? Yeah, that's that's more interesting. But maybe... Because they, they never really explain that part. The part where she's convinced that there's some other consciousness participating in her dreams. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't get explored beyond the opening pages. Like, maybe there's, maybe there's like, a editorial edict, hey, you can't mess with any of Gerber's toys over here. Maybe. So, I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's not a bad story. It's just, it's very much, it feels like Man-Thing from, like, ten issues ago or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The art's very good. Oh, uh, the, the art's good. The Vicente Alcazar art very much evokes the original black and white version of the origin that uh, that we had in those early stories. I wonder if that's intentional. I don't know. Like, you know, they're just like, hey, keep it looking like Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. Which I can't... Well, and, and Neil Adams gets... Neil Adams gets a lot of praise for his contributions to the magazines, like the covers and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I could see that. Yeah. Um, we've got just a bit of a, uh, not a cliffhanger really, but sort of an open-ended ending, I guess, to continue having Man-Thing appear in this magazine. I, yeah. Like, in fact, we've got two open-ended endings, one with Ellen and Leonard, and then the other with this Farley guy. <laughs> oh, gosh. Not looking forward to that conversation. Yeah. Oh, good. A redneck hunter. <laughs> I'm certain. I'm sure he's in the gonna, '70s, even. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to be prove a great threat for the man thing. <laughs> and yeah, that basically, I think that covers all the faces of fear. 
Yeah. Like I say, it's fine. It's like there's nothing wrong with it. It's just it's not it's not a Gerber story, and you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. It's just I mean it's a perfectly fine man thing horror story, but gosh darn it, we've gotten so used to the Gerber weirdness. We we we, we, we need it. We crave it. Give it to me now. Come on. Come on, baby. Yes. Give me that Gerber weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so funny to put it that way when, by all accounts, he was a teetotaler. Yep. Speaking of audio that we pulled out, pull of context. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've put my entire future in your hands. <laughs> um, anyway, after the Man-Thing story, there's a couple prose features. Um, there's a review by Jerry Conway of Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Yeah! The, the Ray Harryhausen movie. The one with Tom Baker. Is, yes, with Tom Baker. That is by far my favorite of the three Harryhausen Sinbad movies. Hello. And actually, Conway's a little unfair to John Philip Law. John Philip Law is the actor who plays Sinbad in it. I think he's quite good um, and, and does a better job of not seeming like just a white-bred American playing the role, which is what you have in the earlier Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Right. He's a white Italian playing the role. Right, right. But but the, the, they make the effort, you know? Yes. Um, I also really enjoy in Conway's review, he, he talks about the fact that part of why they're doing this review is because Marvel picked up the comics rights to do an adaptation of the film. And, and he briefly describes uh, he and Lynn Ween going into Roy Thomas's office together uh, and... Uh, literally having to fight it out to see who gets to do the tie-in. I could see that fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so d- Roy nodded. We're getting adaptation rights for a comic version, and I thought I'd let the two of you fight it out between yourselves to see who writes the script. With that, he left the office, closing the door gently behind him. Ten minutes later, Len and I came crawling out. Len had a few pounds on me, you see, and he's got these shoulders like only Whitey Ford should have, and this ter- <laughs> and this terrific left cross. And, well, if you pick up a copy of Worlds Unknown next month, you'll see it's Len's name in the credits. Because it's Len who's doing the script for the adaptation of this dumb, rotten movie I didn't care about in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now I feel like we might need to cover that adaptation. No, 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 no. We've got <laughs> I enough do kind of want to track it down. We've got enough on our plate already. Yes. Um, so, anyway, that's fun. I like Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Harryhausen is one of my all-time favorites. And his Sinbad movies are all a lot of fun. Even the third one, despite Patrick Wayne being a terrible actor. Yeah, I've actually watched this one for the last couple of weeks. It is a good one. and I, I revisited was... it within the last month or so. Golden Voyage is fun. Yeah. It was fun watching it pop up here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it suits Monsters Unleashed, because the selling point of those Sinbad movies are the Harryhausen monsters. Oh, definitely. So, and there's lots of good photos in the, the prose piece. Yeah. So... So that that's there. After that, there's a reprint. We've got an ad for Crazy Magazine and another reprint. And then we've got an obituary for actor Glenn Strange, who died actually back in September of 1973. So this is a little bit of a late obituary. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not familiar, Glenn Strange played Frankenstein's monster in House of Frankenstein, in 1944, House of Dracula in 45, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in 48. So he was the last actor to play Frankenstein's monster in the Universal Cycle. Yes. 
Uh, he also appeared in the 30s Flash Gordon serial. He was in The Lone Ranger Rides Again, and he famously played Sam the Bartender on Gunsmoke. Did he? Yep, yep. I only knew him for Frankenstein, so that's good to know. Yeah, he did a bunch of Western stuff, too. Huh. As everybody did back then. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Glenn Strange, not my favorite Frankenstein's monster. By that point in the Universal Cycle, the monster was very much the sort of stiff arm, stiff leg automaton. Mm-hmm. Like, he didn't really have the character that, that Karloff brought to it. But it, those movies are still fun, especially Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Um, and then the last prose piece I'll touch on is called Monsters in the Media, which is apparently a thing they're going to start doing as an ongoing in these magazines. And it's basically just a rundown of film, TV, and and book monster stuff that's coming soon. Yep, they've got... Ooh, Dr. Fogs rises again in here. Yep, uh, uh, th- there's another mention of Golden Voyage. Yep. Um, one thing that stood out, they list an as-yet-untitled Frankenstein movie to be directed by Mel Brooks. Wow. Wow, that's that's great. Yeah. Um, they also mention the uh, TV version of Dracula, which uh, is set to star Jack Palance, directed by Dan Curtis, with script by Richard Matheson. Oh, I know uh, that which one. Is, it's a good one, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got it on Blu-ray. Yeah. And uh, th- there's a really great quote uh later in the piece it talks about uh under the section on tv movies it it mentions how a lot of local stations have their own creature feature program that shows old monster movies and this is a direct quote if your station isn't running a regular horror film festival contact the executives in charge of programming and request that they try running them oh and how many a horror host is born (laughs) i i don't think we've made a We've made a um, secret on the show of how much we love horror hosts of back in the day. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, we almost are maybe trying to duplicate the same formula, maybe. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I like that we got Escape from the Planet of the Apes here. Yep. Yep. We got mention of Planet of the Apes. Uh, In fact, uh, looks like CBS at the time was running a festival of all of the Apes films that had been released at that point. Nice. Uh, and then also, uh, there's a section that was I thought was really cool about film rentals. Because, you know, 1974, this is pre-tape. Yep. You know, there's no VHS, there's no Betamax. So if you wanted to watch a movie privately with with friends or family or whatever, you literally had to rent a film print. Yes. And this is the thing that you could do. And so what they do here is they, they list companies that that they think are reputable for getting a good quality print. And, and of course, usually what you'd get back then for, for private use would be 16 millimeter. So it wouldn't be the full quality of a movie theater experience, but it would be relatively high quality. And you'd set it up with, you know, a sheet or a screen and, and run your projector. And you'd have to change out the reels yourself. Mm-hmm. So but I, I just thought that was cool that there, there's this sort of discussion of uh, that process and that that's a thing people are doing at the time. Yeah. I, I was completely unaware of it, in fact, so I'm, I was really interested to find out about it. Yeah, and, and actually, even beyond that, you could purchase 8mm reels, and they would usually be really, really condensed versions of movies. So, like, my dad told me about this, because he had a little 8mm projector as a kid. And and you could, like, mail order for them, and you'd get, like, say, I don't know, Godzilla versus Mothra. But it would be a single reel on 8mm, basically just cut down to the highlights of the monster fights. Yeah. And with no sound. That sounds... 
I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Well, and back then, like, unless you happened to catch it on TV, there yeah. was no other way to rewatch stuff. Yeah, and like our younger viewers, you may not remember this sort of thing, sort of thing, but like even this is days even before like any kind of film rental, so you couldn't just like go and rent the movie and watch it. You had you were relying on either it showing up on television mm-hmm. or uh, a local getting reissued to theaters. Getting reissued to theaters, exactly, or like some uh, theater in town doing a movie marathon or something. Or you you had to rely on that, and you couldn't just go back yeah. and rewatch something over and over again. You had you you maybe got that one showing, and you had to be good for like years. And if you were in like a college town or something, like sometimes they had access to stuff. Yeah, but that was it. Like, like and now, granted, we might have some listeners that don't remember Blockbuster, but we're talking about pre-Blockbuster. Yep, pre-Blockbuster. So, and of course, nowadays, you know, we can watch something within a couple of minutes of hearing about it and watch it as many times as we want. Right. Like, Hamilton came out, like, instantly available to everyone all at once on the internet. Yes. And that's amazing. Yes. But anyway, so I, I am curious. I, I, I'm kind of looking forward to this uh, Monsters in the Media being an ongoing thing just to sort of revisit that moment in time when it was actually harder to find stuff like that. Yes. That's a that's sort of a cool thing. Um, anyway, uh, let's move on to our last story for this magazine, and that's going to be the next installment of our Frankenstein 1974 story that's been ongoing. Title is Once a Monster, written by Gary Friedrich, pencils by John Bashema, uh, inks by Wynn Mortimer, and letters by Charlotte Jetter. Derek McDowell, who found the original Frankenstein monster in earlier chapters, has died thanks to his greed. Meanwhile, his partner, Dr. Owen Wallach, is now stuck in the body of the monster thanks to McDowell's treachery. Wallach desperately wants to reverse the surgery and resume a normal life, but that requires finding a suitable body for his mind to inhabit. His plans are interrupted when his secretary, Ruthie, arrives to work. Wallach panics and kills her to preserve his secret, then justifies his actions with some awful misogynist rhetoric. Wallach then ventures out to Madison Square Garden, resolving that a circus performer would be suitably healthy and athletic for his purposes. He picks out an acrobat as an ideal candidate and walks directly into the show, guessing that the crowd will think a lumbering monster is just part of the entertainment. The crowd loves his performance, but he frightens a woman on the trapeze, causing her to fall to her death. Wallach takes advantage of the chaos to grab his intended victim, dragging him back to his lab. He fills the acrobat with enough anesthetic to knock him out for 24 hours, and then engages in some animal cruelty before revealing that he has invented a molecular transposer, which will allow him to perform brain surgery on himself. Once he placed his brain into the acrobat's body, he'll then restore the monster's brain as well. As he makes his preparations, a lab rat manages to escape its cage, intercepting the signals from the machine. The result, the acrobat retains his brain, but Wallach's mind now inhabits the body of the rat, and vice versa. The Wallach rat now cowers in fear and despair, as the Frankenstein monster laughs and trudges into the night. So, yeah, there's a lot of killing in this issue. Yeah, no, it's uh, very much... <laughs> Friedrich seems to be enjoying the freedom of not dealing with the comics code. Yeah, at first I was like, man, the person who wrote this seems to hate women. And then I just realized they hate everybody. 
No, it, it is very much... Well, I think this story goes out of its way to make sure that you know, you're know you reminded over and over again that this wallet guy is a terrible human being. Terrible. Including like, victim I called blaming. out the misogyny in my, in my summary, because it's real bad. It's real bad. It's okay that I killed you because you were a tease. Right, right. And then, like, later on, he just, like, squishes the lab rat for no reason. No reason except to maybe motivate the other lab rat to do the thing it does. Right. Which is, you know, it's it's the kind of ironic twist that you expect from a horror magazine. Reminds me a little bit of uh, the the ending of The Fly. Oh. Uh, with with the, the little fly with the human head shouting, help uh, me, yeah, help me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, we were wondering last issue how he was going to be able to transfer his brain when he killed the only person who could help him do so. Um, apparently, he has built himself a mind swappinator. Well, what's weird about this is a big point of the last issue was he's not sure how he's going to do it because he can't perform surgery with the monster's hands. Yes. Like, that's a plot point that comes up. But then in this issue, he says it doesn't matter because before I was experimented on, I already had built this machine. So why was he even worried about it last issue? Um, and the answer is because they hadn't come up with the next story yet. But Yes. Yes. Like, for one thing, I'm pretty sure he wasn't this horrible of a human being last issue. He, he was a cancer patient. Yes. Like, he, was he, had, sw- like, he was dying. Yeah, he was, he was kind of like this sweet old man mentor type who... Mm-hmm main character screws over by putting his head his brain into Frankenstein's monster and and he and, you know he might have come across somewhat bitter if justifiably so but nowhere yes. near the evil that we get in this chapter right like there's the part in there where like the circus perform what the hell ha- with the circus performer there's, there's no reason in the story just to kill him but yeah. he's obviously dead mm-hmm. and it's just also, no circus is going to allow some dude just walk into the ring. Doesn't matter if he looks like a jet monster or not. Somebody's going to try to divert him and get him out of that ring. Even if they have right. to make it look like part of the show. Right. Which, you know, I think this, this is a missed opportunity because I want to see Frankenstein kill some clowns. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did enjoy the cutaway to the clowns being like, I wish I'd come up with that gimmick. No, I'm just like, ah, who's this drunk idiot coming into the thing it's like oh let's get him out of here oh god the message of that i wish i'd come up with that gimmick is that even being a lumbering hideous monster is better than being a clown (laughs) yes but yes no the circus sequence is is bizarre to say the least yes it's just and it's not entirely clear why the girl falls i guess she was distracted by the monster right it just that just seems odd to me like there's nothing really communicating the spatial relationships there well i have to say it's because she gets distracted by the monster and she misses her leap or hurt to catch or whatever because otherwise it is painfully convenient right right no i think that's what it's supposed i think that's what the text wants us to to infer yeah but i feel like it's one of those things where the art was unclear, and so the text had to do some heavy lifting to get us there. Yeah. Wait, I have a question. Yeah? Was this our favorite story in this episode? It was... You know, I don't know. I... Hmm... Maybe... It's a toss-up between this and Man-Thing. Man-Thing is less misogynist. Yes. More redemptive. 
Right. But, like, there's just so much weirdness in this one. Yeah. Like, I could easily imagine this extended into a full-length movie presented by Joe Bob. Yeah, like, it, it feels like not Universal and not Hammer, but, like, no. if you were making an exploitation movie with Frankenstein's monster in it and some body-swapping yes. stuff, like, that's what you'd yep. get. Yep, yep. This is what that feels like. This is so Grindhouse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is this is Grindhouse Frankenstein. And, and we? weirdly, <laughs> this is how we're wrapping up April of 74. Yeah, it is weird. I would say what's our favorite story of April 74, but God, I don't remember any of them. <laughs> uh, gosh. Um, I don't really either. No. I, you know what? I'm going to give it to the Dracula werewolf crossover. Was that this month or last month, though? Oh, that's a good question. That might have been last month. That was last month because we've gotten the follow up to each of those. Yep, it was. It was yeah. last month. Dang. So, um, that's probably whatever Man Thing was doing. Either Man Thing or Morbius. Mm-hmm. Oh, we had that one really good Morbius story. You're right. The one really good Morbius story with Steve Gerber. Yeah. Be- that came out be- of nowhere. <laughs> being weird, Steve Gerber. And yeah, it was so enjoyable. Yeah. No, you're right. I-, I think it might, I think this might be the time to give it to Morbius because, gosh, when else would we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in Vampire Tales. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, <laughs> Which, which, uh, maybe thankfully does not have a May 75 issue, because it's bi-monthly. Yep, yep. Although we had the Lighthouse thing. Yeah, yeah. No, we had a May issue. Did we? Oh, no, Did we, we had an April. We had an April. We had an April. But yeah, next, we had an April. Next month, there's not one. Okay, good, good. But yeah, That's what had... I was saying, is there's not another Vampire Tales coming up. Yeah, we had the Lighthouse thing. The Lighthouse story. Right. With the guy with the great name who got killed and for some damn reason doesn't show up again. <laughs> but yeah, I get... Wow, Morbius. Wow. Yeah, and I don't know. It's go figure. You know, since we're talking about what was the best thing this month, we should probably tell them what we're going to cover next month. That's a good call. And uh, we just figured that out recently, and it looks like we're going to be kicking off May of 1975 with another combo of single issue plus magazine. Yep. And that's going to be The Frankenstein's Monster number 10 and Dracula Lives number 6. Right. And we don't have any feedback on this episode, but if you do want to send us some feedback, so we do have some feedback read on episode, you can always do so by contacting us at tombofideas at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Twitter at tombofideas. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash tombofideas. And Trey, why don't you tell them how we're a proud member of the Cinepunks podcast group? Yeah, we are. And uh, that means you can find all of our back episodes on cinepunks.com that's cinepunks with an x we are part of a collective of podcasts made up of people who talk about movies music weird supernatural stuff all kinds of things um we've got shows like cinepunks like horror business um so be sure to check out that website there's some great writing as well about film music movies and other pop culture stuff um and uh and be sure to to check that out and uh and give us those clicks because that definitely uh, helps us keep this thing going. Um, yep. And and also, uh, in case anyone's wondering, um, we've not forgotten the Thomas tournament. Um, but due to ongoing issues in the world, plus uh, some various technical issues, we've had to put a slight pause on it temporarily. But we will be bringing that back in force as soon as possible. Yep. 
Yep. We're going to try anyway. Anyway. So we have, we've kept track of who's, who's moving ahead so far, and we've kept track of where we left off. So as soon as possible, we, we will do the next installments. You do still have that piece of paper, right? <laughs> you mean the one I, I scribbled in crayon? Uh, yeah, on that placemat in the diner. Yeah, with with the with the coffee ring around the corner. Yeah, you think that coffee's still good? Um, possibly. I mean, it's find that paper. I want to lick it. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think that does it for this episode. You think I'm kidding? Give me the paper. Oh, oh yeah, I didn't know you need caffeine that bad. Sorry. Always. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb members, Excelsior! <laughs>